Welcome back to the second official episode of Fixed. I am your host, Jessica Danielle, and I have with me the most special of special guests, the one and only Dana Gleason. When I started this podcast, I had several people that I knew I had to have as guests, but there was never a question about who my first would be. I'm going to let Dana explain that story in her own words. However, what I will say is that I credit her for saving my life and my soul. God brought the two of us together in a moment that was my make or break. Dana, being the kind, genuine, and selfless person that she is, took in a stray without hesitation. To this day, she is the only person who has kept my son overnight, one of my very best friends, and the person I credit fully for giving me the recovery bug. Without further ado, here is the wonderful woman turned best friend, none other than Miss Dana Gleason. Hi. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited that Dana is with me right now. Um, Dana, I'm going to do something that I don't normally do because I have a problem not talking. But even though you're my one of my best friends, I want for everyone else to have your background and your just pretend that no one knows anything, even though I know a lot. So give me, <laughs> but this is Dana Gleason, guys. And this is like the one and only, I, you know, briefly mentioned in the intro who she is to me, but we're going to dive into her because her recovery story is phenomenal and everything that she continues to do today saved my life and she saves countless others as well. So anyways, welcome Dana. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> uh, where do I begin? Back back in the day, um, I grew up back east. Um, I, my dad was a Vietnam vet that came back from Vietnam. Um, he himself had a heroin problem, and um, he was married, married my mom, who never had any drug problems. Um, there's like night and day opposite people and you crash them together and you kind of get me more of like a (laughs) type. And my mom is more of like a super spiritual, um, beautiful human. He's beautiful too. Um, in a different way, like military. Yeah. Yeah. And he's sober now. So he, um, he himself also helps a lot of people and he's tried to help me in my addiction and, I really actually am blessed. I was like one of those kids that, you know, my parents loved me, even though what they were going through in their life, um, like I never felt like they didn't love me. Uh, I was like almost loved too much sometimes. And especially later on in life and my addiction, um, there was a lot of love and maybe enabling because of it. But um, what about siblings? I have an older brother who's my best friend. Um, we were always in everything together. You know, my dad lived in the city. My mom lived in the country in New Jersey. And we went back and forth between the two of them. And the only thing I remember really young and early on was like always having this lonely feeling within myself. Like I kept myself super busy. Um, A lot of times I wanted a different family, just one that looked like the parents came home and you had like a family and I was just kind of winging it. And my mom was working so hard, a single mom. And my dad was, you know, like 
the weekend dad that was you know cool awesome. like yeah, cool like they the call cool... Disneyland dad yes yeah you know like yes. I didn't have a concept of like thing of like reality you know like I remember consistency well like I got diamond earrings when I was like six and I didn't even have my ears pierced type thing like he just you know like overcompensated by getting stuff you know and and so if I, you know, my mom's over here working her ass off to make sure I had like the essentials. And then when I would see my dad, I would just get like getting you earrings for ears that aren't pierced. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody said like, I want a cabbage patch doll. Like I got it that day, you know, like he's just like, no, wasn't really in his vocabulary. And, um, and I did, I had a lot of good times growing up. Um, I did feel that loneliness. I do remember always being super, um, super busy just so I didn't have to sit still with myself because then I would feel lonely and sad. Uh, I um, was that kind of your only, like a lot of addiction in my, well, I know that I'm almost positive you're going to agree with this, but a lot of addiction leads directly back to some sort of trauma at some point, even though maybe at the time you felt like very loved and whatnot. Do you think that the inconsistency was the, trauma aspect or was there something else that like well my dad was like a little um like he was very angry and scary you know so like growing up he would somebody would cut us off on the freeway and he would follow them and like rip them out of their car and like beat their ass and then like just get casually get back in the car and like continue on our day or like he threatened my in eighth grade like he brought a baseball bat out (laughs) And I was on a school bus with my principal and my friends. And he's like, I don't want any of you kids fucking with my daughter. Boom, boom. Right. Like nobody wanted to date me growing up. Trust me. Yeah. But wait, we are. Okay. So I'm Italian. My family's from Boston. Your dad's like mobster, like military, similar to mine. Right. Yeah. We're, I, he's like, I don't know what we are. Cause I just recently, my brother's like, <laughs> we're 3% Jewish. I'm like, wait, what? And we're, like, <laughs> we're from, um, Britain but I don't know where he got that information he just told me last week I was like that's crazy but um he did he was connected with people like that and so um like at at one point he was on trial and they got him John Gotti's lawyer like it was just a little bit like that is traumatizing whether I whether like my memory um reminds me of some of those things there's a couple like I don't have a lot of memory of trauma but like there's a couple moments of like and that's scary you know um I did grow up with this weird feeling that like nobody could ever touch me like I was untouchable because of my dad like yeah everybody was afraid of him so I'd be like what are you gonna do about it my dad will kick your ass you know what I mean like I ran my mouth like I was just like something and like not not really the girl to like back it up but so maybe that had something to do with me never um, being afraid of things I probably should have been. So when I got into um, high school, I ended up um, smoking weed. And then my parents, like I went to my first rehab. And then when I came out, I met the bad kids, you know, like in that aftercare program that we're doing a lot more. And then that just started like this thing where I would go into like, places 15 16 year old kids shouldn't go into like in Harlem Spanish Harlem um running amok I was definitely one of the only little white girls running those streets and oh god yeah and that's like a recipe for disaster and I also really believe that um a lot of those aftercare like that's kind of the story of my husband 
as you know, like he was sent to wilderness camps. He went to boarding school in like Switzerland. Every time the you know that he got in trouble, I remember um, he told me a story about how his family went on vacation for Christmas and they were all supposed to fly home. So he thought, and um, they walked him to a different gate, and he was like, I don't know if he was like greeted by like two like big guys. But they literally put him on a plane without him knowing this was planned. You know, the rest of the right. family went home and they sent him. That might have been the Switzerland time. I don't know. But anyways, yeah. I mean, that's kind of where you, you meet a lot of kids that are doing bad things. And I honestly think it, it's kind of like prison, right? Like you go to prison. Some people will get it right. But a lot of times it becomes a learning environment for bad behavior, you know? Right. No, it definitely was. It definitely was. And so by the time I was 16, 17, I had tried heroin. I didn't really like it back then. Um, I just threw up all day, missed the party, thought this was stupid. Um, I was, it was still like, I was still wanting to be in the, I always thought like, I don't want to miss the party. I don't want to, you know, not be part of everything and you miss FOMO. everything that day. <laughs> oh yeah. FOMO. You're yeah. Missing out. yeah so I just, um, I was running crazy and then I met these kids and then they showed like they, we started smoking Coke, like cooking it and smoking it. And that, that lasted like two months and that was super crazy. And then Isn't I met this crack. Yeah, I guess. Okay. I, I, think, I, think so. I think so. I don't know. <laughs> I think crack you could buy already cooked. I don't know. I wasn't that familiar. This was my only run in with that. Thing. Oh, God. Okay. <laughs> so I decided like I was going to like rob this store with this guy that I was eating all this crazy stuff. And then I and then I met this other guy. And for whatever reason, he didn't think smoking Coke was cute. And it was like at that age where for whatever reason, I cared more about what he thought than about a drug. And I stopped doing it. And then, um, you know, I just stayed over there, not too much going on. Just, you know, then it became like the club scene in New York and ecstasy. And like, I was having a great time. But my friends started doing more like heroin and crack and all this stuff. And I thought, I just want to leave and move and get away from this because I want to have a good life. I want kids. I want, you know, to be successful. And so I moved out to California with like 16 of my friends. We bought this house, me and that guy, he had gotten like this inheritance. And then I broke up with him because I was like, what? I don't want to be married. I'm like 21. Like, I just want to go have fun. So I moved to Newport Beach and, you know, still the party scene. I was working at a club in Irvine a couple nights a week and just partying and having fun going to like Vegas. And then I met my husband, who was my next door neighbor in Newport. And he was, you know, he was, he's always been like a go-getter, you know, so he, he had a good job and, you know, we partied on the weekends. I partied all week long, but he partied on. (laughs) Um. But it sounds like a great, I mean, essentially it sounds like a pretty good living, you know what I mean? Essentially. Right. I mean, it was, yeah, it was good. And I always loved doing hair, like growing up, like I was always, really into um, doing the neighbor's hair and stuff like that. So when um, we got together, I started going to Paul Mitchell, which was in Costa Mesa, and going to school um, for something that I was very passionate about. And then I ended up um, finishing that school, getting pregnant, 
um, we were engaged. So we had my son and got married and bought a house. And um, like, I just kept thinking like, this is it. This is what I've wanted my whole life. Like a, like a marriage and, and kids and, you know, my career and all these things. And I was really good at what I did. You know, I was doing fashion shows in, in Vegas and then I started a wedding business and I started, I worked on some movie stars and I really liked it. I was so talented at it. Um, I would fly places for weddings. I would do all these photo shoots. It was super creative and pretty like made me available to be a parent as well so then I had like two more kids and we had a nanny that lived with us and um everything just looked perfect from the outside you know um my husband loved me a lot I had a house I had you know we went on trips we had dirt bikes and boats and all these things and we were constantly going out with friends but like for some reason that loneliness was never fulfilled like I still had that loneliness inside of me and now- I think some of it's like um how old were you at this point like because I think some of it's also like uh, a maturity thing I went through something similar with I mean I didn't have kids with my ex but I thought I had checked off all the boxes that were gonna you know like college good husband he has a good job I have a good job we have this 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 and I thought that that was supposed to make me happy and I still wasn't but I look and, and he was not the right person for me. Looking back on it, 100%. I was 23 years old when I married him. I, he just was not. I was young. But I think that for me, the I, I was more interested in pleasing other people at that time and like doing what I thought I was supposed to do or what they thought, you know, what, what would make me look good to them. Is that right? Similar? Well, yeah, but I also knew because I grew up very Catholic. Um so I knew that there was something more like some sort of spiritual God, if you call it God. Um, like I knew there was more, but I could never find connection. Like I never left Catholic church services feeling like spiritual, feeling connected to this God everybody talked about. And so um, like I knew kind of that was what I was missing, this connection to something greater than myself, but I just didn't know how to get it. So I was constantly trying to search from outside of myself to fill something that was missing inside of myself. And I just never knew how. So I would set these goals, like the boxes you talk about, like, okay, you know what? I think it's just this. If I go on this vacation, I'll be okay. I just need a break. Or if I get this house or I need this car, you know, if I just have a nanny and then a babysitter. And then if I go to the gym, like there was all these things, like I was constantly seeking to fix myself. So I didn't feel so bad. And so when I'm, my youngest daughter was about maybe two. I had hurt my back, maybe a little bit younger than that. And um, I remember they gave me opiates and game over. Yeah, no, for sure. Like people talk about the allergy of the body. I never really had that with alcohol or like other drugs. I mean, like cocaine was addicting just because it's an addicting drug, like from the second you take it. But it can be I fun, worked- but the come down's not fun. So it makes At it all, like ever. Yeah. I'm the worst. I'm like the worst person to party with on Coke too. I'm always the girl. I'm like, don't go to sleep. Everybody's like, no, we won't. We won't. We won't. And everybody's sleeping. And I'm up like, this is the worst day ever. I'm horrible. Oh, that's kind of how that was a similar experience. And there. they always I- talk me into it. They'd always be like, no, Dina, we won't go to sleep on you. I'm like, you do every time. And then I'm stuck awake by myself, like just hating my life. And they're like, we won't do it this time. And then everybody. And- 
me. I'm like, and oh, you're stuck. You have nothing. You like, you're always like stuck. Like no one, it's like some awkward time in the morning. You're like, what's going to make me feel better. There's yeah. nothing in this house besides maybe doing more Coke. That's going to, there's me not better. even enough Coke ever. So it was like, <laughs> that just wasn't it. But when I took opiates, that was it. Like the very first time I remember, I know where I was. I was driving to pick up this prescription. I was driving home from the pharmacy. I took it. I was in so much pain. My pain was relieved. And all of a sudden, like all my worries were gone. And this was what I needed to feel like for the rest of my life, because that hole inside of me didn't exist for a minute, you know? Mm -hmm. But like when they talk about alcoholism, they say it's not really the drugs and the alcohol that is the symptom. It's like basically what I'm talking about, that emptiness. It's like us, that is is the problem. And that drugs and alcohol become the solution, right? So like I finally found my solution, which was opiates. And um, so I started taking the opiates and this is before everything was connected. And I just started building a tolerance really quick. And I was on like 40 Norcos a day really quickly. And I went into my doctor because now I'm buying them off the streets. I'm dragging these little kids around with me. I got like 12 different doctors going, you know, all sorts of different pharmacies. And I'm really not wanting to be that mom. You know, I know this isn't good. I don't want to be a drug addict mom. I want to be a normal mom. I'm very invested in my kids. They're my everything. And so I end up taking, um, they go in, they go here, take this. This is non-addicting. And it was Suboxone. It will help you. It will help with your pain and you won't have to build a tolerance. And I know nothing about anything. This is, bef- this is when this I this is told- early on probably too. Cause if they were still prescribing, you know, if you could still have multiple doctors and multiple pharmacies and then Suboxone, like I remember that exact time period. Cause it was when like, I kind of got it, got my, I think, Eh, roughly like the same type of prescription but it wasn't interconnected yet like doctors couldn't see that you were going to other doctors and etc yeah and 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 no one knew and and that show painkiller it was like while I was watching it I was like I could smell the smell of those doctor offices you know that you just pay the money because that's where it came down to like yeah like the um so the suboxone worked you know, um, somewhat in the meantime, while I'm doing these pills and the suboxone and trying to figure it out, I'm like, I know it's a spiritual thing I'm searching for. So I'm signing up for these spiritual workshops, um, for like a whole weekend, you know, I'm spending all this money. I'm like, okay, I'm going to go get spiritual this weekend. And then I'm like snorting pills in the car, like on the lunch break, wondering like why I'm so spiritually blocked. Why is everybody eating this? But me, and like, I don't, I can't even see my problem at all but I keep seeking it because like I, I'm just like you're self-aware it was just addictions powerful yeah. you know you were aware enough that you knew it was bad but you didn't know <laughs> what to do about it <laughs> and yeah. how how to get from A to Z you know yeah so the first um so I then try getting off the suboxone and that's when I realized like how bad it really was and how bad I was addicted and how it's like really one of the strongest opiates on the market. You just don't feel it because of the blocker. And when I went to kick that, it was like 35 days of kicking it. Um, was my first treatment that I went to because halfway through that I overdosed on an Opana, which is a really strong for those people that don't know, it's not really out there much anymore. I think they still give it to dying people, but it's like morphine and Oxycontin in one pill. 
And I don't even know if they if they still make them, but that was the best opiate. That was the that, best opiate pill by far. That was my favorite. That, they had little hexagons. Yeah, yeah. That's how yeah. I ended up on heroin because they took those <laughs> off the market and people couldn't get them. So by this point, um, I overdose. I go to my first treatment. Um, I'm kind of running with this one doctor that would write me prescriptions for everything and anything I even ever asked for. I asked, you know, I would get Suboxone, Oxycontin, Adderall, Phenermine. Mind you, I was like seriously 95 pounds and on the norm, I'm like 130. So I was like 95 pounds. He's writing me scripts for diet pills. He's writing me scripts for Adderall. He's writing me scripts for Suboxone, for Oxycontin. One time I went in, I was like, oh, you know what? These people are buying is, um, Viagra. I need a prescription for Viagra too. I could sell them. And he no. to write it down and he's like, I can't write you a prescription for Viagra because it's for men. I'm like, oh, let me give you a guy's name. And he wrote <laughs> in a guy's no. name. Yeah. Okay. So that was like flat out. There's no question. He was like, yeah, I think he's, crooked. Been, I think <laughs> he's been, um, I think he's in prison. And he got out somehow and he's back on, but he was like, they, he had gotten arrested. And at that time, my mom had, I have, I actually have a stack of my medical records from that guy. And like, they never took my blood pressure. I just walked in, gave him money, got my script, you know, but like, um, my mom and I went and got my medical papers from them. And it was like this huge stack. And all it is, is like meds, just the craziest. Like narcotics. Yeah. Yeah, Anything I wanted. Yeah. Anything. Well, yeah. And then, and then. And I mean, I, I used to question whether my doctor was crooked or not. Cause in, I had a legitimate reason, like a big surgery to be on them. But I, I used to question whether he was crooked. I don't think initially, maybe like I watch, you know, painkiller and I watch dope sick and I look at these doctors. I'm like, maybe he really did in the beginning think he was helping me. But then, you know, one day I went in and he threw a drug test at me, never been drug tested in years. And at this point I'd already switched to heroin. So obviously I failed and then he cut me off everything all at once. And so that was like, that's so funny. My doctor tried that after he did that scripting too. So I think that they probably implemented that, that they had to be doing that during somewhere as they're trying to like get back control of this crisis they've now created. Um, I just didn't. I just didn't take the drug test. I left the office. I, I, oh, I thought about doing it. I thought about doing that. And I was like, well, maybe there's a chance I have a fast <laughs> metabolism. I'm like, you know, like he writes me a lot of prescriptions. Do I really, am I willing to like, just, if I walk out, I know it's a no go, but I could, yeah. I could 50, 50 it right now. And I'd be, you know, eh. um, so yeah, I failed. That was, Oh yeah. No, I waited a couple months and then I went back in. I think he forgot the whole scene and I started right back up and you um, know, by that crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Painkiller, so how- it was one of those um, shows that kind of, like, hit the nail on the head. There's a lot of aspects mm-hmm. that really do. I don't find it to be, like, particularly triggering. I don't know if you – that was one of the questions I wanted to ask you. And actually, before you even say anything else, I want to tell you – or I want you to tell everyone – well – I was going to say, just tell everyone that where we met, because, uh, and then... I'll get there. I'll get okay. to that point. That's, like, more in my recovery part, okay. but with Painkiller watching it, if it triggers anything, it didn't. It made me sad, because I thought of 
how sad and desperate and lonely that feeling was to be that person that like the guy in it where he's ruining his family and he doesn't understand what's wrong with him. Like that was totally me and like millions of people. And I feel really sad for the amount of people that didn't make it out. You know what I mean? Like we talked about this the other night, like the P like we made it out and there are so many people that don't make it out and it's just hard. Oh, because like we're no different, you know, like what makes us different? Like, I don't know what it is. I don't know what makes, what made me after going to treatment so many times, just finally get it, you know, like, I don't know what it is. So it was made me sad because it's a very, um, like pills days for me were worse than heroin. Right. Because, um, I felt like it's just was a totally different time and they were really messed with your brain chemistry, the chemicals in them. And so like the depression that I felt and like the hopelessness was on a different level. And I, maybe because I was still living in my house with my husband, trying to figure this out and just seeing the damage I was creating to these young kids and my husband and it got crazy. So when I tried to get off a Suboxone halfway through was the first time I overdosed my mom had come into town, thank God, or my friend would have put me in my bed so my husband wouldn't get mad. And she saw me and took me to the hospital. And so I woke up on, like, you know, all the stuff, hooked up machines, and they were like, do you want to go to treatment? And I was thinking, like, yes, I just need to get off these pills. I really didn't think I was an alcoholic or an addict or anything. I just wanted my life back. I was so, I just need to get back to my family, really, is what I was thinking. This is crazy. It'll be great. Just get this out of my system. So I went to, like, my first treatment. And I had not really been like, like when I was younger, yes, I had seen things in New York, but I hadn't really like been around a bunch of um, drug addicts like I had later on in my addiction. And so like, this was the first time I had seen a tweaker and she had shot up and gave the rights to her kid away for the rest of its life through Child Protective Services out here, this poor woman. I remember looking at her thinking to myself, this poor lady, like, I would never get to that point where like, a drug became more important than my family. And mm-hmm. I, yeah, and I'm thinking what's wrong with her. Um, I've never seen a tweaker before. They're interesting. They're, uh, <laughs> so now I've seen a lot of them. Uh-huh. I'm trying to help one right now. And it's just very different. Uh, yes, it's different. So, it is. <laughs> Um, out there, I told people, like, you don't know me. My kids are my everything. Like, I'll never take Suboxone again. I would never shoot heroin. I'm afraid of needles. Like, you know, I had my list on and on. And I would have bet everything, my kids' lives, on what I was saying, like, how true it was. And when I came back from that treatment, um, it wasn't long before I, like, started shooting heroin. And that was, like, wild. And I called my dad the very first time I shot heroin. And I told him, like, that I shot heroin and I was in trouble. And, um, essentially that was, I think I heard in your podcast, when you say you take that needle and it's a whole different animal and there's no coming back like that was wild, you know? Um, it really, there is, I mean, it's like, you could do like, you know, I, a lot of people start smoking heroin first. I went straight my jump went from like Oxy's, Opana's, and Roxy's to shooting heroin. And I never like smoked it, which I, I don't know. I was never a smoker though. So I think that that was like part of it. I just like, I don't know. 
But yeah, once you hit the needle, you're done. I did try to smoke it. And I think I shot it up because I couldn't essentially smoke correctly. And I would cough and blow the heroin fly off the foil. I'd miss the smell. Yes. It was just ridiculous. People get mad too, right? If you're like, so mad. Yeah, so mad. Mad. I was so, so bad. bad. So like, and then I was thinking like, oh, you don't even need that much. So look at, you know, like it's such less. Well, like it was less to begin with for sure. But by the end of my run, I did like six grams a day. And um, like I've even seen people in my recovery and they were like, dude, you are nuts. Like I've never seen somebody do so much heroin and have be like your size and still be functioning. Like I would oftentimes like make something for somebody else and they would just end up overdosing because I'd be like, Oh, that's too much. Uh, Sorry. uh, Yeah. But you know, it goes to show like everybody. I mean, I never was into smoking weed. I could barely like hit like anything. And I would be like, I would just pass out or eat the pantry. I would be like just paranoid and I hated it. And I would be the one that smoked the least, but I could do enough heroin to kill an elephant, you know? And so it's like, it's really weird how that works but maybe that was just like I think to each their own with like in terms of what makes us feel like maybe you know I mean what makes us feel I think me and you both have like fast paced fast talking brains and I think the calmness but you still being able to kind of stay energized that's that's like an, if you can it's so weird isn't it's it? such a weird thing and that's why I think it's like the allergy of the body we all have different chemical makeups you know like um certain drugs do certain things to people and that was just like the lineup and the setup for me was like this worked until it didn't <laughs> so now I find myself I'm like out on the streets I'm doing crazy things um you know, my ex-husband tried everything in his power to help me. He didn't understand addiction or alcoholism and he just wanted his buddy back, you know, like we were partiers together and, um, we had fun and like all the kids would come to our house and swim in the pool. And he was just like left with these three little kids and now their mom is gone. And I remember they would just be crying for me and I would just be running from them. And it like, is heartbreaking now to like think of, And a lot of times people like in recovery will be like, well, that's not the mom you are now. You know, if I see a picture of them when they were little and I know that I wasn't sober during that time and they were missing me and I missed out on that. And then it makes me feel sad. You know, and I know your kids. It makes me like that actually like gets your kids. um, I always brag to people about your kids because I'm like, dude, she is like the greatest mom of all time and her kids. And you have four kids. Yeah. And they love you like profoundly, profusely, immensely. And they're such good kids. And, and I'm like, that is like, you know, so, I mean, you have, I mean, I'm sure looking back, you know, you recognize a lot of that, but you really like, I mean, from the moment I met you, I've only known you as being like an amazing mom, like so good with babies. Like, it's like, you're just that, it's like what you were made to be. You just had this little other part that you know had to mess it up for a second yeah it was kind of crazy and so um like but I do tell people like it doesn't matter like people that say like that's not who you are now that doesn't matter I still will never if 
if I'm the mom that I am, which I am, <laughs> like, you are. they're my everything, you know, I'm going to look at a picture and it's going to make me sad. There are things I will never get back. The biggest thing I lost in my addiction is time that I can never get back. You know, everything else has been fixed, restored and repaired for the most part, you know, and it continues on a daily basis. Um, but those things you'll never get back. So it's okay for me to look at a picture of my daughter and think like, wow, like I miss that, you know? And I do remember going in and out of my rehabs, like trying to stay close to my kids. Like I'm, I was never a bad mom like that. I do know I was just, I had this drug problem and you like can't be a drug addict and a parent at the same time. You but can't be a trying- drug addict in anything at the same time if you're messing with right. So, I mean, much less a parent. That takes, like, everything yeah. anyways. <laughs> so, I would get these notebooks and, um, like, I would tell the kids because I would want – I would just always validate, like, it's okay if you're really mad at me. Like, it's okay if you're angry with me. Like, during my time of my addiction and going in and out of treatments, like, I would say these things to them because, like, I'm mad at my behavior too. That doesn't mean that you can't love me. And I remember saying that to my oldest son and like he understood, you know, so I gave them these notebooks and I told them like, when I see you, we'll trade them on and off. Um, And you could write things in it like, mom, I wish you were here to meet my best friend or mom. I was so mad at you because all the other moms were here today, but you weren't, you know, or draw me a picture of something Mm -hmm. that's beautiful or tell me about your best friend. And then I would take the notebook back next time I'd see them. And I would just write them things like I'm sitting in rehab. I'm like missing you guys so much. I'm so sorry. You know, all these things. I found my one from Owen the other day. It's in my closet. And it's just, it's crazy to think like what they had to go through. But anyway, long, like back to, back to where I was at, um, going in and out of these treatments at one point. How many do you think you did by like, like before it was all said and done? Um, it, like, cons- including the ones I did when I was like younger. I mean, like, yeah, like, I mean, how many? Or twenty-seven. Okay, a lot. Um, I didn't stay through all of them. I wasn't like that person, <laughs> that, like, excelled in treatment and then just couldn't make it on the streets. Like, I just couldn't stop doing drugs. I had this obsess obsession, and like, I just couldn't stay sober. I barely made it through a detox. I. I was like the craziest um, client. I was like that client that they'd all be like, oh, geez. Um, So, but during this time, um, I was running with my son's dad on the street and I ended up having pneumonia. I I couldn't stop throwing up every day Um, while I was getting high. I went to the hospital and they were like, oh, you have acid reflux. They gave me medication for that. And like one other time I was over there and then I went in there feeling super bad and they had to do a blood transfusion and they were like, we're just going to do an ultrasound first. But I was so high on meth and heroin. I had no idea. Well, I was just like, okay, whatever, you know, and then we go down and do this ultrasound and and I was pregnant, (laughs) like five and a half months pregnant. And um, I saw the baby because obviously he's my last, my fourth. And I was like, what is that? And he's like, oh, that your baby. I was like. It's like a drop the mic moment. I had one of those. They actually kicked my husband out of the room. Well, he wasn't my husband at the time. The doctor comes in with his like eyeballs, like just like, you know, like about to blow up out of his face. And he's like, "Um, sir, can I ask you to leave? And he goes and he looks at me and he goes, I've got to tell you two big things. He goes, but first, um, you're pregnant. Is that the dad? 
and he is I'm like oh and I like I don't even know what I, I I honestly think I like blacked out at that moment but I was like you can bring him back in yes that <laughs> yeah so like it was crazy like that and I was um like no I don't think so I'm not having a baby you don't understand <laughs> and the craziest thing about that ultrasound is that she said she had never seen this before um his hands were like praying up like they look like they were praying even the lady said I've never seen it. it looks like he's praying and I was like thinking poor guy was probably like mommy please I'm praying for you to stop getting high he's and um, the cutest kid ever too yeah I couldn't stop getting high though unfortunately but um like God has had his hand in my life for always and I ended up getting MRSA in my blood stream from needles and um, by the time I got to the hospital, I had like 105.7 fever and they were like, if you waited six more hours, you would have died. And so I spent 30 days in the hospital, you know, the drill of the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, I got Unfortunately. long enough to stay clean for his delivery. And so he was, didn't have drugs in his system when he was born. And I was really trying to pull my life together. Um, his dad was arrested again you know, sometime after he was born. And at that point I knew I like, I need to get into a treatment. And so my mom had called this, found a treatment I could take the baby to. And I started calling on, on, um, uh, August 11th and I called every day, but I wasn't homeless and I wasn't in a dangerous situation. So it took a while. And in that meantime, my mom came out and I was like holding it together. But then like, I ended up losing my son and he went with his grandma and when that that's your what wait number you say his grandma you're talking about his dad's dad's mom yeah and whenever that happened that's when I just went off the rails I wanted to die I thought what kind of mom does this and um for the next three and a half years I think he was like you know a couple months before his fourth birthday I spent going in and out of treatments. Like I watched one of my friends overdose in a hotel room. Um, we got him back to life, but his, he was brain dead. They had to pull the plug. It was just like, you know, everything and anything that happens out on the street, like I witnessed. And um, like most of the time uh, I did what I would never think that I would do just to get my drugs. I like you never sold my body either, but there was a treatment that I was in one time that, these like down bad like prostitutes from like this area over here came in and spoke about how like they just had this horrible experience and they were just like you know brutally raped by these people and like just living this horrible life as these prostitutes and like I remember seeing that treatment and this is how like messed up my brain was that I sat in the treatment and I thought to myself that's it I just need to be a prostitute (laughs) and if I become a prostitute my life will be so bad there's nothing but up from there I didn't think like I couldn't hear a message like these girls are trying like now when I speak to people and I tell my story like and they haven't gone as far as I have I think to myself I'm trying to stop you know, this from happening for you <laughs> by telling you that my very first treatment, if I would have just listened and followed directions and did this program and did steps and found God, like maybe I wouldn't have had to do all these other things, but here I am, you know, I did all these other things. So 
Um, I never, but it made you like the person. I mean, you have to look back as, as much as I do understand the aspect in particular of looking at photos and being like time. Like I do understand that. And that is something you're right. That's about the only thing that you can't get back. But I will say that like, from the moment I met you, like, well, you had been sober for a while the day that I met you and, but you had like a sober swag kind, you were like strong and independent and like fierce. And like, there's so many like amazing adjectives I could use to describe you, Mm -hmm. but you had to get there, you know? Right. So I don't regret like the things that I've done or had to go through because like, I do recognize, um, some people are built for certain things. Right. And so like, I went through a lot of hardships, even when I did get sober. So I'll get to getting sober since we're like, um, you know, moving right along. And I don't want to run out of time. Cause like, that's the most important part. That's the hardest part. Like we could all run our lives into the ground like that. I'm a professional. at. I always like make this joke. I'm going to write this book and it's going to be called like the really great book of super bad ideas. <laughs> like, <laughs> this sounds like a good idea. It turns out it wasn't, you know, <laughs> how, to, how to fuck your life up. Yeah. So like, we're all good at that, right? We're all good. I was like selling drugs, like large amounts, picking up from cartels, selling it to skinheads. Like I was just a mess. I had like cases, like legal cases, other cases with my son. Like, I just, like, I really thought that I'd screwed up my life beyond repair. Um, There must have been, when I walked into my last treatment, like, I didn't really want to get sober, but I didn't want to live like that anymore. I had car, I had money, and I had drugs on me, which I brought into treatment. I'll get to, like, that was my thing toward the end. I was like, oh, well, I just don't know if I really want to get sober. I'm going to bring this in with me. And sometimes if I ran out, I would run out of the treatment or have a you know, I, I remember like running through the bushes from a detox to meet somebody I found off of like Craigslist. <laughs> and I was like, just don't park in front of this address from <laughs> detox and like running through the backyard and like sneaking this drug, <laughs> like just a mess that I put myself there to get better, you know, but like, that's, the- it's easy for us to look at it now and like, kind of like laugh. Yeah. Now, but like, I mean, really like I, and I, and I always try to like stress this too. Most normal people, like people that have never been to this level of a bottom, they really like wouldn't believe the majority of the stories oh like that we like, like there's one I'm not even going to say because I don't know if the statute of limitations is up on it, but you know about it. You're like the only per- oh, yeah, person. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, I'm like, oh, my God, like people would it's not crazy. even like. Right. Yeah. It's like, like people level. wouldn't believe me. Yeah. So when I got into this last treatment, I remember hearing this one thing and this guy had us do this thing in this one treatment. And I always say this when I speak because it really stood out and it's really factual. So he said, look around the room and see what's red. And then um, I'm going to have you guys close your eyes and whoever could remember the most amount of red is going to win. And I was in treatment and there's not that much to do. So I was making sure I saw like the fine detail red things like I was really going to win this and impress him. And then um, I closed my eyes and he was like, what's blue? And we were all like, well, we were looking for red. And when we opened our eyes, he's like, that's because you're going to get what you're looking for. If you want a reason to keep getting high and running out the storm, running in your life into the ground, like there's tons of reasons. There's tons of people you could attract yourself to and you could keep doing that. Or if you want to like start looking for God and things like people, places and things presented to you to get you out of this hole, like that's going to be there too. It just depends on what you're seeking. 
that gives me goosebumps. I remember I've, that that's something that I've heard you say a few like a few times just from knowing you, and I've always remembered that story. Yeah. I don't know if I've ever. It's like it's so that's like it, the it's so true. So like I walked into this treatment, and um, my son's dad was with me. His brother, which is my son's uncle, also made it into that treatment, and there was a couple other clients too. And I remember walking through that door and I remember just saying to God in my head, like, if I don't get sober this time, kill me if I walk out this door because I don't want to live like this anymore. I'm like, my kids are getting older. I'm missing life. I'm lonely. The drugs aren't even working how they used to. I have no relief for myself. And I was in so much fear because I didn't want to get sober, but I didn't want to get high and I didn't want to live, but I certainly didn't want to die. And I was just left like raw with myself, like the thing I've been running from my whole entire life, like this thing this loneliness. And now I've created so much damage that like I had abscesses up and down my body. I was shooting in my temple when I got sober. I mean, I was really messed up. I thought I'm so unlovable. I'm all scarred up. I've missed my kid's life. I'm never going to be able to be anything. Like how will I ever take care of them? Like all these fears, all this, like just depression and, and like, damn it did you did you fear um what other parents that knew your story around you would think in particular about your kids because I know that's always been something especially my kids yeah like my kids like I never wanted them to be embarrassed but I really quickly okay I did not want my kids to be embarrassed but I think that they quickly became so proud of me that they weren't embarrassed and I think I'm sure throughout like you know what God has always had a hand even to the fact that like my son's good friend's dad drank himself to death my daughter's best friend who also is a family member of hers her mom just dropped her off and never came back from addiction my other daughter's best so it's not like they they are like thinking oh my god it's my mom like their closest people to them, like didn't get their parents back. So I think there was like a relief that I was finally back and they had their mom that they had been missing their whole time, you know, and all my kids have been blessed, including my son being with his grandma to be surrounded by love and structure and stability and never had to like be dragged through the ringer, which some kids have to in addiction. And so um, when I said that prayer, like, let me die. And then I just said, like, give me 1% willingness to like figure this out. And then I went to a meeting and I heard this woman share and she shared about being a fashion model in New York and where she scored dope in New York City. And like, you know, I'm New York, you know, I I just love it. And so I was like, oh, that's going to be my sponsor. So you see, like, God, let me hear what would draw me to this woman. Cause I didn't hear anything else. I didn't hear like, you know, how she got sober. I was just, in, you know, wanted, like, I love New York. I love dope. And I like fashion like, okay, this is my girl. And so she showed up at my treatment and when she got into the book with me, Oh, let me get back to bringing drugs in here. They found out and they asked me if that spoon they had found in the fireplace was mine in my bedroom. And I, um, said no I don't think so that doesn't really look familiar and they were like you were the first client to go through this room ever and so I remember that was the moment I surrendered like if I don't get honest if they kick me out like I'm done I knew I wasn't gonna make it back alive like I just knew it I had overdosed on the street so many times I can't even keep track so um I said yeah it is please don't kick me out though because if I walk out that door I know I'm gonna die and they let me stay and um 
I did get into auction and I didn't do anything perfect. But the one thing I did do early on was I started speaking at panels at other rehabs. Somebody tricked me to do it. And that was the first time I realized that like all of my pain could help somebody. And I didn't, it wasn't for nothing. And that for me was what I needed, right? Like it couldn't be about me because when I thought about me, I thought about what a piece of shit I was, like what a ugly human, what a horrible mom, like all these things. But when I just thought like, wait a minute, like you, you could help people out of that hole. Like that just suddenly became like, a big focus of early sobriety for me. And so like, um, well, I used to think you were crazy. I, um, I used to think that you were like, still do. <laughs> I, well, I mean, I still kind of do too, but you know that I think that, but I know, I mean, okay. I like you take, I always say like you take on strays and yeah. you do. And it's the most amazing thing about you. But at the time that I met you, I didn't know who I was meeting. First of all, I had no idea like what our relationship would bring. But like literally I tapped you on the shoulder in like the most unlikely of circumstances and you just said yes. And like that is like recovery, right? And like I never like – and I remember like watching over time with you. I'm like why are you letting these people like live in and out of your house? And like why are you like doing all this stuff and driving here and driving there? And like it's like why are you like what? Like you know they're getting high. Like what are you doing? Like – and, and I just didn't, it wasn't, I wasn't recovered from the inside yet, even though like, cause I do think a lot of recovery, which had I not met you, I don't think I would have gone down the same path to helping others that I experienced. Cause I also like to do what you taught me to do, but I just, yeah, yeah truthfully, it's all because of you. So thank you. My, my husband would be like, oh. I know thanks a lot Dina yeah (laughs) I know I get it um yeah I know uh (laughs) so that was the thing for me you know and then you know God placed a lot of moms like yourself and like other um of my people that I've helped sponsees or just friends you know like some people I don't sponsor because I'm their friends but like I am able to support them to be the moms that we all deserve to be and that our kids deserve and you know, it's just about that. And, and like, that was important for me. So when I started thinking like that, my life started to change drastically. And I got into a lot of action. And I couldn't think about that person that I had become. I remember my therapist telling me like, Dana, if you don't stop thinking about like how to get out of this, and like, not like, how did my life get here? This isn't where I'm supposed to be. I was never supposed to turn out to be like this homeless junkie person you know, who can't even take care of their kids and have this beautiful life, you, you have to stop thinking like you're here. Like now you need to think about how to get out of here. And like that changed too. I started thinking like, I couldn't think about my kids for a while, like in the pain, because it takes my breath away. It used to the first year. Like if I thought about it, I would like a be like somebody took a knife and like physically stabbed my heart. Like that's the reaction my body would get from like the pain I caused them. So I started working, I started speaking in high schools. And I remember I had to go to San Clemente High School, which is out here in California. And um, my son's cousin was going to be in the auditorium that day. And I remember thinking like, my son doesn't really know my story. Because one time he said, at least you never ended up in jail, mom. And I was like, Yeesh. and so like, I had to say to him, like, look, I'm going to speak at San Clemente High School. And um, let me tell you a couple things. And then you could tell me if you want me to speak there or not, because I don't want to embarrass you. 
And so I told him and he was like, geez, mom, you know, and he told me like, I never thought you didn't love me, which is how I felt about my parents too. He goes, mom, I never thought you didn't love me. I used to go to bed and think like, I hope nobody calls me tomorrow. And my mom died tonight, but everything's cool. Like he was like, I'm good. I'm, I'm the person I am because, um, because of everything I've gone through and I'm much stronger than most kids that I know. And I thought to myself, that's not good, (laughs) but he wants to go to bed every night thinking like, is my mom going to die tonight? Like, that's horrible. But here we are. I mean, but you know, okay. So, okay. So Owen, I don't know if you were talking about, you were talking about Owen, I'm guessing, but um, Owen has a tattoo. Why don't you explain that? Oh Yeah. So we got, this is the same son. We went and got my sobriety date tattooed on, on ourselves. Um, on which my is so year. cool. Like, on which my, is so cool. Yeah. On my three-year sobriety. And he was still in high school. He went to Mission Viejo High School. He's still on the football team. And I remember he said, I went in and coach said, oh, Owen, that's a new tattoo. What's that date? And he said, oh, it's my mom's sobriety date. And then, um. The coach was like, oh, your mom doesn't drink anymore. And Owen was like, oh, no, my mom doesn't shoot dope anymore. And the coach was all, oh. <laughs> Very you know? honest. Thank you, Owen, for that. You would be a terrible criminal. criminal. Yeah. <laughs> I've, actually, I've actually even had Owen um, come into rehabs with me when I spoke on a panel to speak about, like, the family after and, like, how you could repair relationships and what it was like for him. And he came in and spoke at a couple of the high schools as well, talking to the students about what it was like to have to be a kid who was worried about his mom dying every night because there's lots of kids in schools right now with that going on that um, they feel very ashamed and like don't have anybody to turn to. And it's just like the more we talk about it and the more we bring it out in the open, the less people have to suffer through it, including the innocent bystanders, you know, like there's nothing to be ashamed of. Nobody goes out and goes, I think I'm going to become a junkie, right? Like we're just... Well, there was a part of it for, I think everyone in the beginning, even when I like, like I was so ashamed when I knew I was like using the needle and like fully addicted. I was so ashamed to face like my face, the music, face my family and the people I grew up with that I just walked out of my house and went to the dope man and I never came back, you know, and, and that is so sad. And so for me, well, also, I was a big picker. Like, you talk about scars. I know that um, mine was on my face. I think the majority of yours were, like, on your arms, maybe, or, like... My legs. Or, yeah. Actually, and, um, anywhere I get stick a needle. So, I have them on, like, my hips, my stomach, like... Well, but that's hard, though. Like, and, and that was something... I didn't want to get in front of a video. Even once I, like, was, you know, a year sober, whatever, my face, like hadn't gotten better that was like a big thing because I had always like that was just never an issue for me until those couple years of like doing drugs and then I had melasma from having my son so it's like this mixture of like pothole scars and bad coloring and like terribleness and just insecurity um and uh, and you know I mean I think that I really I really felt uncomfortable for a long time talking about it. And I, there's people like you um, and, you know, there's a few others that have made me feel more comfortable for sure. Um, But mostly you um, 100%. You had out of everyone, I would 100% 
say that you had the largest impact on my sobriety. 100%. If I had not met you the day that I met you, which wasn't supposed to happen. Yeah. But God, <laughs> which I was not supposed to happen. I cussed out God the whole way up to that appointment. And then on the way back after I met you, I had to have a, an apology to God. Like, I see you need me places that I don't even know ahead of time. And, um, like, I remember linking you up and linking you up with other moms that were going through similar situations and that had recovery, you know, um, our good friend, Rachel and things like that. Because like, the thing is, is like, we just need each other. Like, that's it. And, um, like helping out and, and really just, it's amazing. Um, like the stigma that's so around this whole epidemic is really sad. The ignorance of people not knowing or just not understanding and, um, comments on, on social media, comments on social media. Horrendous. Yeah, I know. I was just thinking that I think we had that conversation the other night too, about a sober living house. And I'm just thinking to myself, like those people that don't understand, maybe they'll never have to, I hope for most people you don't have to, but like for the people like my parents, like, like the love they have, my dad had moved out here. I ran circles around him, tore his life up, tore my mom's life up. Like anybody who tried to help me just like got demolished by like the anguish that this like disease is creates, you know, to the people that love us, you know, trying to save us. And the bottom line is, is like, you have to save yourself. But the most important thing is, and I think for like the mom part is like a lot of people don't talk about it. You know, a lot of people are in fear. Like, what well, I mean, think CPS of- is, is something to they. I, I really believe I've been through like all sorts of legal stuff, but I really believe like even watching and hearing stories of your sponsors and like watching yeah. what you went through and like, and then the stuff I've been through, like Lily, I mean, my God, like, you know, they have more power than any other agency in period they can literally like take your kid just by someone making a phone call saying that you like i mean if you're you're in california so you spank them yeah (laughs) so it it is like that and and so i think there's like a lot of fear i think a lot of moms that are stuck without you know, like how mine was very obvious, right? Like, I'm not really good. I'm all in whatever I'm doing. So when I was using, I was all in and I just like, so everybody knew, but there's like, you know, like housewives that are secretly like stuck on Xanax or whatever it is, like pills, alcohol, you know, and they're, they're, they don't know where to turn to reach, to talk to people, to speak out to people, like to get the support because there's so much shame behind it. There's so much. But have like, you okay? So this is an interesting topic, and I would love. I want to know what you have. I would never would have thought to ask you about this right now. But okay, so you're really hardcore into, um, or you were. You know, you work the steps. I'm a believer in the steps. I think everyone should work them. But I was never into meetings for a variety right. of reasons. But um, I have known multiple people that were very into meetings and into the the recovery um community tied with their meetings that when they themselves found that they had relapsed they were too ashamed because they had built their entire identity based upon that recovery like what do you think about that sentence or what i just said um 
that's funny. I guess that would be um, something that I I don't know how I would feel about it. I mean, of course, people in AA, like the right people, if you're spiritually fit and you're really working a program and you're really just trying to be a spiritual person and God-centered, then, then, then everything should be without judgment, right? I shouldn't judge your spiritual path, no matter what it looks like. So when you come back to AA and, and most people will welcome you back and it's just like a you thing, um, it really could prevent you from saving your ass. If you're worried about your face, they say something like that. But um, like, I do know people say like, what made you not get high if you wanted to get high and like some people say oh my kids or oh um god or whatever accountability the truth of the matter is like if I've ever thought about it which it's not something that like I get stuck in in for long periods of time but like if I ever thought about it even um like for me something social would be more of a trigger like a glass of champagne or you know smoke casually like a lady you know like that would be it but like for what would stop me always and every time from something like that is that like I sponsor a lot of women and I help them get their kids back and I help them rebuild their lives and I lead them to God themselves to their own spiritual path and like if I did that I wouldn't be able to do that and so it would make me feel so selfish and so like that is my number one reason why I've never you know, said, oh, okay, I think I could just have a glass of champagne. So it saves my ass by staying in the 12 steps for me. And like the 12th step is like having had a spiritual awakening, you know, you now help somebody else through the steps. And so I stay in that, even though, you know, sometimes I say I'm not going to, (laughs) (laughs) um, I do stay in that. And then you most definitely, you most definitely have helped a lot of people. Do you feel that you've helped like more people than you've seen past because I know that with fentanyl in particular like there's it's I mean from what I've been told is that yeah of course there's still like the people that you know started off like kind of in our age bracket area that started off with pills and went up and they want to get sober they're in addiction whatnot but people today that are starting these kids they're not there's no ramp up so there there's no tolerance built so they just die yeah so I know that God has like knows I think the universe God whatever you want to call it I think knows like what you're capable of handling so like in my own life I was I there was a lot of nights where I would say God I don't see you but I trust you because I'm sober like that was the hardest thing ever done But I think that, like, also I went through a lot of things so I could help a lot of women because, like, anybody that has gotten their kids back, like, never had to go through what I had to go through. It was, like, a nightmare. That could be a whole episode on, like, how crazy that was. But also, like, I don't get a lot of people, like, my gift is helping people see God within themselves and like linking up. Like I have no answers to anything. I can promise you that. Like if we go leading on my judgment, we're all screwed. Like (laughs) we're going. No, more so if we go driving in your vehicle, we're all screwed (laughs) to get off of the road immediately. (laughs) So I just, um, like I lead people to like have their connection with something greater than themselves. And like that has been my gift. And so thank God, God knows, like, I'm not really one 
who really can do the in and out, in and out, in and out. I lost this one. This one died. This one died. I mean, my heart would be crushed. And like, I don't know if I would continue on my helping path if of all the people I was helping were dying. So I don't think personally, like I've sponsored anybody that has died and God really sends me people who are just like us that were just done. Like they're done. Like just show me how to live is, yep. I mean, like ready. Yeah. Like it was the right, like it was the right moment. Like I, I know at least for me, I was like, I was, I ha- had no one other than my husband. And then I was finding this news. And that's literally what, um, what has been sent my way is mostly people that are done and willing. Right. And, and then if it feels like something that I'm not capable of, it's like, I don't take on everything. Like sometimes like I, I know it won't be a good fit. Right. Like if like some people need like constant, you know, like one-on-one, like always there, always accountable meeting at seven meetings a day. I mean, like I have four kids, I'm a single mom. I, you know, have all my sponsees. I do my own business. I have all these things going on. Like I don't have the capability that I'm, well aware and I have no problem directing them to somebody that has that kind of time and ability to like help them stay accountable and change so like it's it's been really nice that you know my boyfriend you know him and he's he's that guy <laughs> that has he the time will make the time we'll read the book we'll save everybody you know more so than most people I've ever met actually and um and we just all have different strengths and gifts and I feel um, like you I feel like you or selling yourself a little bit short on that. <laughs> I really, I really um, genuinely do because I, to this day, okay, I mean, I love helping, but like there's a far cry from helping versus me letting someone like live in my house, <laughs> which you have done. Like there's you, you're Dana. I know you're talking about that time that I took the baby. <laughs> I, okay, I'm talking about, I can think of like a few. <laughs> I can think of like that's the that, and I can think of a, a time you've like caught your vehicle. You're oh. like, oh, I I can think of like, yeah. Remember you had yeah, a vehicle. They <laughs> yeah, they did, and and you had my kid. Remember because yeah. it was the only. <laughs> and and I'm like, oh my god! I'm like, damn, this is yeah. when I'm like, this is when your flashers. You know, let's just start like I like uh, I can. And Austin's like, why would why would you ever do this? But no, there really is like. Honestly, like it, even like, you know, I think about me with you and I think about Rachel with you and, you know, you have a couple other people, um, I won't say their names, but I, I can think of a few that I know for a fact that you have really helped. And I think that in itself is something, and then like even passing on the bug, because I did not have the bug in the beginning. Right. I mean, like, I did not. I, I, I was, yeah, no, I just didn't. And but it was <laughs> you, like, tell me, am I wrong that, like, you came from a different place where you just felt like if you started speaking your truth, you might not be accepted? Oh, I mean, no, I mean, yeah. Because I, I, I remember when you were making your your beginning and you were in the hospital and you were nervous and you were like, go look at my posts, like, make sure you look at my posts because you were afraid so many people weren't going to be accepting this and like that's part of it like that's the bravery that's the um like that's the most amazing thing that you did for yourself and for so many others because like as soon as you started doing that all these people started flooding in that needed to hear that that needed to needed you as a um 
this, you know, like to, to get it out there, you know, to take that shame away. Like that's our biggest mission is to take this shame away because that is what's holding so many people back from being able to speak their truth. Like this does not discriminate. This does not discriminate. One of the Kennedys overdose. I mean, like it doesn't matter. What well, someone accused me is. on TikTok recently of only posting. Okay. So straight, straight up. This is a true comment that was left on one of my faces, the fentanyl pages. And they, they specifically said, why do you only post photos of white high schoolers? And I was like, Oh man, I was like, I was like, okay, first off, that is not true. If you want to go back and look at the thousands of kids that I've posted, but I post first and foremost, the kids that are sent to my email. Okay. So it just so happens that because those areas, in my opinion, are more stigmatized, that they are dying at a faster rate because people will not talk about them. Like there was just a big old event where I'm from, which is a very affluent area in Dallas. And um, my grandmother went to the event and she was like, it was so sad because like no one was there. And I'm like, yeah, you want to know why no one was was there? Because they're embarrassed. Yes, that's why. Because they're afraid. And that's crazy. I just saw it's funny that we say like, this is just such a, um, such a problem, such an epidemic in this country right now. I was just watching, you know, on one of the TikToks or something. And it was like this kid that made a TikTok about his dad who was super successful. I think he was in the film industry and his dad, I believe was like 59 and not a drug addict. And he probably went out and partied with his friends and did a little Coke and the Coke was cut with fentanyl and this kid lost his dad. Not one of us, not somebody who's fighting addiction on a daily basis. Somebody who went out to have a good time with his friends. Most it of them aren't hard. anymore. That's the and thing. Kid doesn't have his dad. I mean, like this is everywhere in every social status this is in kensington this is in beverly hills this is in mission viejo i mean these like you look out your window they were worried about a sober living over here i'm like do you know how many drug dealers and drug addicts you have living right here in this little city like you have no idea i do you know totally um, well i mean i don't because california was see i also people places things california was really great because it was Place, right yes and that mattered so much like if I Tucson there was no chance in hell I never if I had to stay in Tucson the best thing that God ever did for me was he once I like had gone to treatment I I bailed on my probation officer in Tucson and um, I called and I got approved well I had to like go through like the court stuff luckily COVID was going on so I was able to do it like via Zoom but I was like I will never go back to your city I'll never step foot back there please like I don't have any family ties there I have nothing there other than doing bad things in that city do not make me finish that probation there do not send me back there please don't make me go back there and like and they just dismissed the whole thing I know that happened to me when I got sober with all my cases too so I know we have to wrap this up. I know. It's like, I know. But I I know I could talk with, you have so much like knowledge and power and strength and hope, but I mean, at least, but at least we got your story out. And I do want to, um, I know you're going to kill me for this one, but I do want to get my phone number. Oh my God. (laughs) Okay. All right. 
Okay. Your podcast. I will. I'm just gonna. You know what? I'm just my all is added to the description of the podcast too. Might as well. Hey. If they need help, they can reach out to me. And if I can't help them, I am super linked up with people who are really about the business and really about saving lives and not. You know, some of these weird treatments that can just not really care about recover recovery. They care about the money. And um, we could go into an entire like five hour thing. Yeah. Dirty treatment practices. Lots of support around the nation of really amazing people that can help. So if anybody listens to this and needs um, some sort of direction or help, they can call me. My phone number is 949-526. Six zero zero two, and Jess will put it on the description and kill me later. I will. I'll, <laughs> I will. I heard her do this on a different podcast, and I literally like, I almost like fell over. I was like, "Can you give them like, like, can you give them like a handle, like an email, like?" Or, I'm like, "Oh my god!" But okay, but it, since it's already out there, I mean, uh, you know, no, but that's the kind of person that she is. And that is what makes recovery recovery. That's what makes all of this work. That's what makes like, you know, like it, it just, that is the definition of recovery is wanting to help others and being a way different and more selfless version of yourself, which is exactly what and who you are. And you're the most incredible mom ever. But I love you, and you're one of my best friends, and I'm... I love you, too, and I'm really proud of you, and let's just get message out, uh, you know, as much as we can. Let's do it. And Thanks. um, and tell Pej, uh, He's next. He's next. <laughs> okay. Sounds good. <laughs> okay, well, everyone, thank you guys so much for listening. This was Fixed, my second episode with Dana Gleason, and she just gave you her phone number, and I will also add it to the description. All right. Love you. Love you too. Bye.